I'm starting a new series. It'll be a short one, short and sweet. It's going to focus on the life of Jonah the prophet. And he's a fascinating guy in every way. And the story is something that I think we're all familiar with. In fact, uh, it's one of the best children's stories of all times. You know, for those that have young kids, you know how much they love Jonah. Now, I've done the adult version of this. I've entitled it Jonah to Hell and Back, right? This is the story of the historical Jonah, and it's borderline unbelievable. At best, a fantasy designed to communicate the heart of God to forgive and bless his people. But what if it's actually historically true? And then and only then would it become the sign of Jesus' claim of being the Messiah. In other words, if Jonah actually died and descended into hell, the Hebrew term is Sheol, and then was raised from the dead and subsequently brought the great metropolis of Nineveh to repentance and salvation, how much more will Yeshua the Messiah accomplish once God raised him from the dead? This is the Jonah-Jesus connection. They are tied together. The stories of their life, everything that happened, that puts them on a crossroads in terms of theology that cannot be separated. Think about this for a moment. Growing up, I don't know about you, but you know, I always understood and was taught that the miracle of Jonah is that God kept him alive in the belly of a whale. For three days and three nights. That's the miracle, right? But is it? Is that what the story is about? I think we're going to have a little bit different read and some insight into this story and why that doesn't really work. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's jump into the text, Jonah chapter 1. We'll look at the first couple verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amite, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, in starting the story, let's start with the name, Jonah. What does his name mean? Does anyone know what his name means? Jonah means dove. Dove. That's what it means. And the symbolism and the meaning is powerful in every way. In fact, the dove is an archetype of innocence. That's what the image of a dove communicates, innocence. That's a universal, by the way, that's a kind of a universally understood symbol in, in cultures around the world. Even Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents, and innocent as doves. The dove also symbolizes the promise of rescue and redemption. Remember the story of Noah in the Bible when the floodwaters receded, Noah sent a dove out and it returned with an olive leaf in its beak. This communicated to Noah that the catastrophic judgment of God in the universal flood was over and peace had returned to the land. Since then, in addition to innocence, the dove has come to symbolize deliverance and forgiveness. Jonah, the man of peace. 
the innocent one who will bring repentance to Nineveh and thus salvation. This is what Jonah's name is communicating. It's a perfect name for the man who's going to be called to do this mission. Now, by the way, uh, we have a problem, of course, with Jonah, and we're going to look at that in verse number three, but just to kind of get there first before we read it, keep in mind that Jonah has a big feud with God. This is why he's not wanting to go. And the reason he doesn't want to go is because he knows what God's going to do ahead of time. God's going to say one thing and do a different thing. And he wants Jonah to go and prophesy. And that's going to be a problem for Jonah. Why? Because in the end, Jonah's going to look like a false prophet. You know, I prophesied this and it didn't come to pass. Aren't words from the Lord supposed to come to pass? Yeah, what are people going to think of me? What happens to my name, my reputation? So this is a problem from the word go. So let's pick up verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, which, by the way, if you look at the map, it's 180 degrees in the other direction from Nineveh. First thing he does is says, I'm not doing it. In fact, I'm, I'm running as far away from Nineveh as I can go. Polar opposite. So he went, now listen to this, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Running from God. Yeah, not his best idea. How do you run from God? You know the old saying, you can run, but you cannot hide. That's so true when you're dealing with God. How do you think you're going to escape the presence of God? Here's a question for all of us. Are we running from God? Let's get more personal. Are you running from God? Are you running from God? We cannot outrun God. We cannot hide from God. There is no place. There is no realm that we can hide from God, not even the realm of death. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw their cargo from the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and had fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. No man is an island. Our sin affects everyone around us. Same with the blessing, by the way. Same with the blessing. When we obey God and he blesses, it touches us and everyone around us. When we're in rebellion and sin, it touches us and everyone around us. No man is an island. Verse 7, each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots 
so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, the dove, right? Do you think God was involved with that? Oh, you know he was. God's all about lots. You can read about casting of lots in the Bible and how God uses and even speaks through that. And here they are about ready to cast lots. And Jonah being a Hebrew is saying <laughs> something that probably I can't say from the pulpit. <laughs> lots? Really? You guys are going to cast lots? Yeah, I'm done. Sure enough, the lots fell to him. When God has your number, there's nothing you can do to get around it. Verses 8 and 9. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? What do you do? Right? Prophet. Really? I mean, what's that all about, right? Next question. Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? They're gathering a lot of information about Jonah. And he's talking about his people, his God. They're all probably acquainted with some of the stories about Israel at this point as well. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. You know, in the ancient world, gods had specific locations, geography, domains that they were over. That's how the pagans understood the heavenlies. He's here saying, I serve the Lord God, the God of the Hebrews, and he's both the God who made the sea and the dry land. The good news is, is they're realizing, well, if he made the sea and the dry land, and we're in the sea having a big problem, and he's Lord of the sea, then maybe we got ourselves a solution. Verse 10. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord who made the sea, because he had told them that much. Verse 11. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? Great question. Great question. I mean, they already know the answer but they're going to get his buy-in because they don't want to be guilty for what they're about to do. So what may we, or, or what, what shall we do to you? you? You help us out here that the sea may be calm for us for the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. It's getting worse and worse and worse. How many people have ever been in the, in the ocean out, out kind of past the breakers, you know? Um, and ha- have you ever been in trouble in the waters? Yeah. What a frightening thing that is. There's nothing to stand on, nothing to grab hold of. You, you, can, you can, you know, get panic-stricken pretty quick, and, and, and it's, you're done, right? Yeah, they're out there in the middle of this raging storm that's getting increasingly worse, and they know they're going to die. If God doesn't do something, they're going to die. And Jonah finally comes to terms with, what he's done and what he's brought to those around him. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. 
For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. You know, what insight, you know? I mean, I mean, he connects all the dots because he is a prophet, by the way. You know, one of the things that prophets have as part of, part of their gifting is the ability to see or perceive God and his activity. They'd be able to connect dots between the supernatural and the natural, right? The heavens and the earth. And Jonah, he's figured it out. He, he says, man, this is all about me. And this storm really is about me. And you all who are innocent are going to die because of my sin. And I can't do that in good faith. And so as a prophet, a man of integrity, right? He tells him, just throw me over. Throw me over. That, that's what I deserve. And, and you guys deserve deliverance. Verse 13. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. The men didn't want to have Jonah's blood on their hands. These were good men. They said, no, we're going to row. We're going to make it to the land. We're not going to have your life, you know, your blood on our hands. So they try their best to get back to the land, and the storm increases because God is in the storm. And God is saying, you're not getting out of this, man. Throw him over. You, I'm using you to accomplish my judgment on his life. He has rejected my call on his life. He's running from me, and I'm not going to let him get away with it. Throw him over. Then they called on the Lord and said, verse 14, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. They're sensing that God is in the mix and that they're supposed to throw him over. They're beginning to realize we think you want us to throw him over. Please don't hold his blood on our account. This is your doing, not ours. We're just following your bidding. So they're doing their best to do something horrible and to have an excuse for that in terms of Jonah's life. So they pleaded for God's mercy in this. And then verse 15, they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging they pick him up they throw him he hits the waters and all of a sudden the sea becomes calm now that would have been great um relief to the men because they would have realized immediately yes it is god and this is god's judgment and we won't be held guilty for this man's blood but surely he will die being thrown into the sea. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped his raging. Verse 16. 
Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's amazing what we do when we find our reverence for God. You know? When you get to the place where you realize God is involved in my life and that he loves me enough that he'll do crazy things that are quite shocking because, after all, he's redeeming me and trying to wake me up from my own sin, right? You can get pretty pretty um, changed by that, right? So what do they do? They sacrifice and they make vows. We're not going to do this anymore. We're not, gonna, we're, not, we're not drinking anymore, at least while we're working. You know, or whatever, you know, they're making all these vows because they, they sense the presence of God is there. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Three days and three nights. Now, how they reckon time is different than how we reckon time in our culture. In Jewish culture, especially ancient Israel, all the way up through the first century, even really down through in many uh, um, Jewish groups, even to this day, but especially by the first century, they counted time inclusively. So any part of a day included the whole day. So, so they were inclusive in that. So it would be anywhere from approximately 25 hours to 72 hours. That's the time period that we're looking at. You know, a complete three days and three nights would be 72 hours. We tend to think in terms of hours and minutes. And they just, they just talked about calendar, calendar days, basically. So what we're looking at is anywhere from 25 to 72 hours. Now, now um, I, I want to state that because it's important for us to under, understand that really that's not a big deal in light of the story. Because when you're thrown overboard and swallowed by a great fish, how much time do you actually think you have before you die? Yeah. You're talking minutes. Minutes. You, you're, you, you, know, you know, and when we talk about fish, and I'll get down to this in a moment, the Hebrew word basically is just talking about sea creatures. Okay? So it would, it would include whales. And so if you had a whale big enough, like a sperm whale, swallow you whole, uh, what do you think? You got, do you got a lantern down in the belly of the fish? You're going to read some scripture and appeal to God for hours? No. You're in, you're in the belly of a whale, and there's a lot of methane there. If you look at the biology of a whale's stomach, you know, you're breathing methane for a while. You think you can breathe methane and live? You're not going to live. No, actually, you're going to die in a very short period of time. In a matter of minutes, you're going to die. There's no way you're going to make it through that scenario. Oh, but that's the miracle of Jonah, right? The miracle of Jonah is God kept him alive in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. Is it, right? Um, I'm going to get some handouts for you uh, pro probably next week because really what I want to do, because uh, this is important, the connection between Jonah, three days and three nights, is significant because it actually becomes the only sign that's given to authenticate the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. And we get stuck on the three days and three nights versus the miracle of Jonah. And, and, and we make a big deal out of the time uh, period, three days and three nights. But the way that Jews count time, I'm telling you, is different than we do. And so I'm going to give you a document that shows how they counted time 
both in the ancient world, both in the scriptures, and in their own culture um, as we get up into the first century. And, uh, and that will help you understand that whole issue because it's going to become important as we study the book of Jonah. So next week I'll get those handouts for you and you can look at those as well. Back to the story. The Lord appointed a great fish. And under this word fish, of course, you have all the sea creatures. Here's the question. Were there any species of fish in the Mediterranean Sea that could swallow whole a human being? You know, there's, there's, just, there's just maybe two, maybe three, you know, but, but really the, the big possibility or probability if that was to happen is only one, and that is the sperm whale. That is a sea creature in the Mediterranean that could swallow a human being whole. And if it did, you're done. Okay, it's over. I'm going to read from the following. It's entitled, What Was the Great Fish That Swallowed Jonah? It's from a Jewish website. If you want that, I can get that to you. Um, but it basically does some exegesis, not, not exegesis, it does some research on this whole idea of a fish swallowing a person whole, and is that possible? Let me, let me read this. Sperm whale weighs up to 80 tons, reaching lengths of 80 feet. The sperm whale is the largest whale. Sperm whales have been cut open to reveal entire sharks and squid that have been swallowed whole. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you, most sharks are bigger than the average human being, right? And yet they've found them whole within the stomach of sperm whales. They can consume around one ton of food per day, making an 80-kilogram male a side dish. So, so in pounds, that would be if you took a guy that's like six foot, 176 pounds, that whale swallowing you would be like you or me eating a french fry. That, that's a, that'd be like a pretty small appetizer for that sperm whale, right? Another tidbit, in Jonah 2, uh, this would fit uh, very well with sperm whales. Verse 6 says that Jonah went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The phrase bottom of the mountains is a reference to the bottom of the sea. Okay, it's the sea floor is what it's in reference to. Sperm whales are known as the deepest diving large whales of the whale kingdom. They spend time hanging around the continental shelves hunting for giant squid and can dive to more than 3,000 meters, that's 10,000 feet, holding their breath for around two hours. So, could have happened. Could it have happened? Let's just look at this purely physically. Probabilities aside, could any known sea creature have swallowed a human being whole? Yes. Could any known sea creature have ingested said human still whole into its belly? Yes. These things are all in the realm of possibility. So where does the impossibility lie? It is in the human being being kept alive in such a hostile, oxygen-deprived, acidic environment as the belly for 72 hours. That is where the miracle lies. And that is where the Bible says the miracle lies. Or does it? Where in the story of Jonah does it say that that's the miracle? 
I've read it over and over and over. There's no such miracle. It's unstated. That's a tremendous presumption on behalf of, of, of what these uh, writers have posited. Yeah. What does the story actually say? It's important. Because if that's the miracle, what does that do to the gospel? What does that say about Jesus? Because like Jonah, he's in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Well, if Jonah was kept alive in the fish, maybe Jesus was kept alive in the grave. Maybe he didn't really die. But doesn't that tamper and actually undermine the resurrection? See how that doesn't work? Theologically, there's no tie-in anymore if that's the miracle. A closer look will reveal what the miracle actually was. Let's look at the prayer of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2 and verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. Okay, so the first thing Jonah does, being swallowed by the whale, is he starts crying out to God, God, help! That's probably his first part of this prayer. We have a highly edited uh, version of this. The Bible is a highly edited document. The stories are much larger, okay? So anyway, Jonah's very smart. He begins to cry out right away. He's going to cry out right away. You know why? He knows he has minutes to cry out, and it's over. Just minutes. And so he is crying out. Notice, there's a shift in location in his prayer. Notice what happens. He goes on to say, I cried from help for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. From the belly of the whale, to Sheol. Two different locations. What that implies is that Jonah died in the midst of crying out to God. He passed out and died. And he's no longer in the belly of the whale. His body is, but his spirit has departed and has went to the realm of the dead. Sheol is the realm of the dead. And it's from the realm of the dead that he continues to cry out to God. Sheol is the place where the departed spirits of dead people go. When we come to the Greek scriptures, the Greek scriptures take the word Sheol and translate it with the Greek word Hades. Hades is the Greek term that's used to translate the word Sheol. And you know what we do with that great Greek word Hades when we translate it into English? We use the word hell in translating Hades. That's the term we use. So Jonah actually died, descended into Sheol or Hades or into hell, if you will. Thus, the title of my teaching, Jonah to hell and back. That's 31, put that up. I'm so proud of that title. Don't deny me. Don't deny me my title. There we go. Right? Jonah, to hell and back, to Sheol and back. That's important. That connects with the story of Jesus. Jesus died. He actually died. He, he wasn't kept alive in the grave for three days and three nights. No, he died, and it says he descended into hell. 
or in the Greek Hades or the Hebrew Sheol, he died and his spirit went into the realm of other spirits, the location of the dead, because he's going to take back that abode from Satan in his resurrection. That's why this is so important. So in a very real sense, Jonah dies and goes to hell. This is a horrible, horrible, traumatic event for this guy that's running from God. His prayer goes on. For you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seeds, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and bellows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I wish I had more time to unpack even that and what it's actually saying and communicating. If we understand the ancient world and what they understand about the sea and the underworld and death, oh my gosh, it's just, it just screams, he's dead. Verse 6, I descended to the roots of the mountain, the bottom of the sea, which in Hebraic thought and in, in a lot of ancient cultures, the bottom of the sea was one of the places of the departed spirits. It's the realm of the dead. I departed to the roots of the mountain, or I'm sorry, I descended to the roots of the mountain. The earth with its bars was around me forever. This is another reference to the realm of the dead. But you have brought up my life from the pit. The pit was another word that conceptualized the realm of the dead. It was called the pit. But you have brought up my life from the pit, the realm of the dead. O Lord, my God. Suffice it to say, Jonah died in the belly of the whale. His spirit descended into the realm of the dead. It is there that he continues to cry out to God. Psalm 139 gives us perspective about can we run from God? Is there places we can go where God's presence cannot be found? Let me just read a few of these verses. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 8. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I die and go to the realm of the dead, your presence is even there. God is even present in the realm of the dead. When you and I die, location changes, but his presence is still there. And for Jonah, he prayed to God, even in that place that he had found himself. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Again, a reference to the realm of the dead. Psalm 139, 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So Jonah doesn't lose hope. He's banking on the mercy of God. Even in death, he's crying out. He knows God is everywhere. The big question is, is did God hear him? Did God listen to his prayer? And did God answer Jonah's prayer? The chapter ends with this magnanimous statement. Jonah 2.10 Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Amazing, right? What did the fish vomit up? 
he vomited up more specifically. What did he vomit up? Was it Jonah? Yeah, he vomited up his body. That's what's in the belly, is Jonah's body. His dead, partially digested, stinking, physical body. That's what's vomited up on the seashore. That's what's lying on the beach. His corpse. He, he didn't get vomited up and he's standing, you know, comes rolling out of the whale's whale belly and he's like standing going, whoa. No, it's his corpse on the beach. Where was Jonah's spirit? In Sheol, the realm of the dead. Or in the English, in hell. This is the realm of the dead. And he's about to be brought back up from hell, the realm of the dead, by the life-giving power of God. Let's read about it. John, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. This word in the Hebrew is kum. It means arise. Kum. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. There's his dead body. God speaks to his dead body and says, Kum. And all of a sudden, his spirit shoots up into the body and he stands up. God says, go to Nineveh. You say, well, you're reading a lot into the text. Really, I'm not. It fits the context. If his spirit was in Sheol, then it's his dead corpse that's on the, uh, on the seashore, right? And this is going to work as, as we look into this a little bit more. This is all going to make sense. Let me give you another. Let me give you an, See, see the, 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 the miracle of, of, of the story of Jonah is resurrection. Jonah's dead. There's his corpse on the seashore. God speaks, kum, rise. And his spirit comes back in and Jonah stands up. That's called resurrection from the dead. He arose from the dead. That's why he's the sign of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Because Jesus says, I'm going to rise. And when I rise, the question of my Messiahship is settled. Just like Jonah. Let's look a look, take another look. Or let's take a look at another resurrection story. And I think you'll find this fascinating. This is found in Mark chapter 5, verses 35 through 42. This is Jesus speaking. It says, while he was still speaking, people from the synagogue official's house arrived and said, your daughter has died. So the, the synagogue official had already sent uh, some people to Jesus who was already doing some healing in another location. They said, please come. My master's daughter is, is dying and uh, he's requested that you come and, and heal her. And so Jesus is on his way, gets interrupted by another person who has a hemorrhage, the woman that reaches his talit, if you remember. So he has slowed down with his entourage on his way to this official's house. So he finally makes it to the official's house. They said, you're too late, she's dead. And it's a horrible scenario. Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? disregarding the message that was reported. Sometimes you have to disregard messages that other people speak over your lives. You know, the doctor that comes and says, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do for you. 
Okay, well, thank you. But I'm going to disregard that because I serve a God that can do the impossible, right? I'm going to live by faith, not by sight, right? So Jesus disregards the message and says to the synagogue official, do not be afraid. Just have faith. Just believe. He did not allow anyone to accompany him inside except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they arrived at the house of the synagogue official, he caught sight of a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So he went in and said to them, why, is, why this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. Then they ridiculed him, and then he put them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and those who were with him and entered the room where the child was. And I shall add, where the dead child was. Verse 41. He took the child, he took the dead child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum. There's that word again, Talitha kum. That's the Hebrew word that we were just talking about in the Jonah passage. And yet this is a Greek text. What's happening? Well, the author here is actually supplying the Aramaic instead of the Greek. He's keeping it in the Aramaic. So we have Talitha kum. That's actually Hebrew. The Aramaic is Talitha kumi. Kumi is a slight, slight different sound in our ears. And Aramaic is, is, is a um, dialect of the Hebrew. That's, that's why it's so similar. Talitha kum or Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. That Hebrew word that God spoke over the dead corpse on the sea bank. Jonah's dead corpse, he says, kum, and resurrection took place. Jesus says to the dead girl, kum, and she rises. Notice it says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Verse 42, the girl, a child of 12, arose, just like Jonah, arose, just like Jonah from the dead, arose immediately and walked around. At that, they were utterly astounded. Why? Because she was dead, and Jesus res resurrected her. And how did Jesus resurrect her? By speaking the Hebrew word, kum. That's all he did. Kum, arise. And she arose from the dead, just like Jonah, dead on the seashore. How did God do his miracle? The same way he spoke the same word, kum, arise. And just like the little girl, it says that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. In conclusion, and we'll make some application, Jonah, the prophet, refuses the call to go to Nineveh and proclaim judgment. He knows that God will not make good on his prophetic word. He, he, I'm not going to go speak these words because they're not going to come to pass and then my name is tarnished. I know you, God. You're a merciful, kind, compassionate God. You'll even change your mind when it comes to judgment at the slightest hint of repentance. I'm not going to go. Let me give you a passage to help you understand what Jonah's problem is. Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning of verse 21. 
And if you say to yourself, how can we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken to the prophet? Verse 22, whenever what the prophet spoke in the name of Yahweh, the thing does not take place, it does not come about, that is the thing that Yahweh has not spoken to him, presumptuously the prophet spoke it. You shall not revere him. Yeah, Jonah's saying, I'm going to go say, thus saith the Lord, and then it's not going to happen because you're going to change your mind, and then I look presumptuous, and I'm no longer respected. I'm going to Tarshish. And that's why he's out of there. He runs from God, but in doing so brought even more trouble into his life than he ever, ever could have imagined. He's thrown into the sea, swallowed by the fish that was commissioned by the Lord. He prays and then dies. And in the uh, realm of the dead, he continues to cry out for God's mercy. And after three days and three nights, God commands the fish to expel him on the dry land. And then God speaks, Kuma, and he rises from the dead. Just like that. His spirit comes up and into his corpse from Sheol, the realm of the dead, and his body comes to life. And in his resurrection, he decides, I think I'm going to go to Nineveh. Learned his lesson. And that is the first part of the story of Jonah to hell and back. So our application today. Are you running from God? Is there something that he is clearly saying to you that you need to do that you're refusing to do? Let me make that clearer. I'm not talking about, yeah, I think God wants me to do this or I think I should make this decision. Now I'm talking about you know when you're knower. You know when you're knower that God's saying you need to do this and you're just running from God. Or something he's clearly telling you to stop, to cease and desist, right? And you're ignoring him. You don't want to be a Jonah. You're not stronger than him. You're not wiser than him. You can't run from him. You can't get away with it. If he's clearly speaking to you to stop something or to do something, don't be a Jonah. The reason we have these stories is because God's trying to tell us that they relate to us and that he relates to us the way he relates to those in the stories. But the Lord is saying to all of us, if you love me, keep my commandments and my instructions and I will use you as a vessel of honor. If the Lord is speaking to you and you want to respond to him, I'm going to ask you to stand. If the Lord is speaking clearly to you and you've been ignoring him or running from him, you need to stand. And the reason I say you need to stand is because if we don't actually do things to communicate to God that, yes, I'm responding to you, then often we don't follow through. And so prophetic words always call for prophetic action. And so I want to give you an opportunity 
to turn your story around before it ends up being a story of a Jonah. And so if, if that's you and God's speaking to you, stand, just stand. I'm not going to have you come up to the altar or anything like that. I'm just going to ask you to stand. Just stand. And acknowledge to God, God, I hear you. I hear you. I'm responding to you. I'm responding to you. I hear your voice. And by your grace and by your spirit, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. Or I'm going to stop doing what you've told me to stop doing. You know, when you do that, God honors that. God will give you what you need to accomplish whatever it is he's asked you to do. And that may take some time to walk into that. You know, that's a process. So, so you, your, your commitment to say, well, I'm going to stop this. My, it might take a while. That's okay. God is with you. He's heard you. He sees you standing. He will help you. We were reading in, the, in our Torah class today about if you've stolen from someone, you, you can't just say, I'm sorry to that person or God. And you should say you're sorry to both God and the person. That's what we learned this morning. It says you also need to return what you've stolen or the value of it. Plus 20%. Oh, I'm under the blood. No, you're going to be under the blood if you keep it up. <laughs> Might be your blood, right? No. God's saying no. Go make it right with your brother. So for some of you, it may be simply something God's saying, you need to make this right with your brother or your sister. You've never done that. Because you just thought confessing it to the Lord was enough. And he's saying to you, no, you need to go talk to them, and you're just ignoring that. That... that that's what I'm talking about today. If God's speaking to you clearly about anything in your life that you're ignoring, that's where you want to stand and respond and say, okay, God, I'm going to get this right. So by standing, you're saying, yes, I hear you, God. And you're also saying, by your grace and your spirit, I will follow you in this area of my life that you were addressing. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. In fact, what I want is everyone to stand now together and we will all pray together. And if you're comfortable, you can just repeat after me. If not, I'll just pray on your behalf. Father, I hear your voice. I say to you, I love you. I revere you. Thus, I stand before you. And what you have told me, by your grace and your spirit, I will do. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for your mercy. Now fill me with your spirit to help me accomplish that which I've been ignoring or running from. You are so amazing in every way. I lay my life down to you. And I'm going to have a great testimony when I fulfill what you've called me to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I bless everyone here today, especially those that stood, encourage them, breathe on them, deliver them from all of their enemies that would seek to undermine their commitment to you in any way. Give them the liberty to accomplish that which they have stood for today in Yeshua's mighty name. Shabbat Shalom.